Amen. And it's good to be with you today. Last Sunday, Ann and I were up in Santa Barbara with our youngest granddaughter and her parents. And we had a great time up there. I watched church online, actually watched the first two services. And Justin did a great job talking about goodness. When I came back, I wanted to go over to his house and kick one of those big stones down there against his neighbor's car, but I decided that would that probably wouldn't be good and it would frame him. But the last Sunday before, we started in on the Olivet Discourse, the second longest sermon that Jesus preached. And it was a sermon that he preached, really, things he shared with his disciples because they were asking about prophecy. They were saying, what's going to happen next? How do we know when you're going to return? How does that work? And we saw in chapter 24 that he taught them more what was wrong than what was right. He goes, look, there's going to be a bunch of people saying all kinds of things about the future. Don't believe them. There's going to be a bunch of prophecy books that are written. Don't get shook up by them. There's going to be a lot of wars and pestilence and earthquakes. It means nothing. He goes, look, when I come, you'll know it. It's going to happen Boom. Nobody will wonder. But he said, all I need you to do is to be ready. All I need you to do is to live your life in expectation of the fact that I could return at any point. And so that was his focus, completely opposite the focus that most people have of how do we calculate how is this going to go down. He's like, nope, none of that stuff. I want you to be ready. Now, as we come to chapter 25, he gives us some powerful insight into the future, but some powerful insight into what it means to actually be ready. And in the process, what he's telling us in a brilliant way is, how do you do life right now? All we have in our life is right now. So how do you live right now in a way that really makes sense and is really fruitful and productive. And so he gives us a lot of input on that, which is, which is important. So he begins chapter 25 with two different parables. A parable is a story that parallels something in real life. The way we are wired, we understand stories a lot better than we understand philosophy or lectures or facts or content. It's the way that we are wired. Um, I I read a book this week about storytelling, a guy who's one of the experts on storytelling, and he talks about the fact that we are so wired for stories that even when we go to sleep, our brain keeps creating stories. He also gave some research that talked about the fact that listening to stories and reading stories is something that actually makes you more healthy psychologically. They did tests, and they had one group of people read fiction, and the other control group read nonfiction. And the people who read the fiction actually had less anxiety, less depression, and they also had better relationships with others, which is really sort of surprising, especially since an awful lot of my life I've read tons of nonfiction, And now as an old man, I'm drawn more to fiction. Um, See, 
that's the way we're designed. And it's why Jesus, mostly what he did was tell stories. We would look at storytelling as, ah, it's fake. Jesus told fake stories called parables, but the lessons that they contained were powerful and they can touch you in a way that just laying out the facts cannot do. And so Jesus tells two stories here. The first one, we call it the parable of the ten virgins. It, it alludes back, I'm not going to read the whole thing, you can read it, but I can summarize it for you. In their day, a wedding was a big deal, but they didn't plan the wedding. Everybody, you know, put the date on your calendar and everything's prepared and ready to go. Someone would get basically engaged or betrothed, and then sometime in the next year, the wedding would come. And nobody quite knew when that was going to happen, but they had things set up so that one night the groom would get a few of his buddies and they'd start walking to the bride's house. And they had it set up so that one of the things they would do, they had some young girls who would have lamps ready and it was so impressive because here come these guys and then these little girls, they're like flower girls in our day, And they would come out and join the parade with their lamps. And here you'd see this trail of lamps coming to the wedding. And then, boom, they'd have the wedding and a feast and all that kind of stuff. So in Jesus' story, he says, there were these 10 young girls who had lamps. And there you can imagine, young girls, they're excited about a wedding. Um, It's only after you've done it a few times that it wears off. But (laughs) so, and five of them, had their lamps ready. They had oil in their lamps. The other five had lamps, and they really wanted to go to the wedding. They just didn't have the batteries charged to actually run the lamps. So they came kind of short of being prepared. And in the end, it's kind of tragic, they were trying to tell the girls with the oil, oh, give us some oil. And they're like, go to the store and get some. That's what we had to do. And if I give you oil, mine might burn out before we get to the wedding. So five girls are a part of the procession. Five girls missed out. And in the end, it says, down in verse 11, the other five virgins came and banged on the door of the wedding and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus inserts, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So Jesus is saying, I'm coming back, and I'm not going to tell you when it is. I don't even know. Only the Father knows. But all I'm telling you is, every day you should live your lives ready to join the parade. Because you may miss out on the party if you haven't done the kinds of things that prepare you to participate. Powerful, sobering message. Kind of sad for the five girls that... Didn't get to the wedding, but that's life. Then his second parable is a parable that he tells about a master and some of his servants. And he says in verse 14, the kingdom, and by the way, this parable is explaining in more detail the first one. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. And that's how you know it's a parable. It doesn't say parable. But when it says like, you know, that lets you know. This is a comparison. This is something 
um, you know, we would call it a simile, where you say, this is like that. So he goes, here's a story for you. Man's traveling to a far country, called in his servants and said, for each of you, I'm going to commit a certain amount of assets to you for you to manage while I'm gone. And it says that he gave, he delivered his goods to them. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately went on a journey. So a talent wasn't an amount of money. A lot of times, you know, there are a lot of words in the Bible that reference currency. But talent was a bigger word. It's the word talent. And it's also the same word that we use for talent. It refers to an allocation. In this case, it probably was money. But the idea is he gave a certain amount of something valuable to each of them. And everyone didn't get the same amount. They got according to their ability. So the one guy, he thought, this guy's really responsible and smart. So I'm going to give him more. I think a lot of times in life, we trip on the fact that not everyone has the same amount of talent, the same amount of ability, the same opportunities. And, and in society, a lot of times, we try to do things to even everything out. It, it doesn't work that way. Different people have different capacities. So he gives five to one, two to another, and one to the guy that he just thought, well, this guy's kind of a goofball. But what's the worst thing that could happen? I lose one talent. No big deal. So then he goes off into a far country and didn't, you know, they didn't know when he was going to return. And it says that they traded with them. They did business. In, in uh, Luke's account of, this, of a similar parable, he told them, do business, invest until I come. And so they did. And the guy with the five talents proved why he got five talents. He doubled it during that time. Pretty amazing. But the guy with the two talents turned into an overachiever because he doubled his. So five became 10, two became four. The problem was with the guy that got the one talent, he also proved that he was a goofball because he went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his Lord's money in verse 18. So when he finally came back and he brought the servants and said, okay, how'd you guys do? And the guy with the five talents said, I did pretty good. I mean, I would have liked to have done better, but I doubled it. And he's like, good job. That's great. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. He goes, this is just the start of your career. And then the guy who had received two came and told them, yep, you gave me two, and I've gained two more. And the Lord said to him, well done. You did well with what I gave you. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then the last guy, he had received the one talent. And he said, Lord, I knew that you were difficult and, and you know, you value your stuff and you work hard and even you get stuff that you don't work for. And I was afraid. And so I just went and hid your talent in the ground. Look there, you have what is yours. He's like, he didn't even dig it up. He's like, I can, I'm pretty sure I remember where I buried it. So there you go, it should be safe. And the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. 
You knew that I reap where I haven't sown, gather where I haven't scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. Come on, you could have got something from a credit union. And at my coming, I would have at least got interest. Therefore, verse 28, take the talent from him after you find it and give it to him who has 10 talents. These guys all kept what they got except for the guy with the one talent. He choked on it. For to everyone who has more, will be, everyone who has more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And then check out the ending. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, man. What a severe story. Now, I was reading this week about Grimm's fairy tales. Some of those were pretty gross. I mean, they were really intense. And, and, but this story is like, so there's this guy, he's got money, he gives it out, different amounts, and in the end, he says, send that guy to hell. Wow. But then, after he tells this story, then he goes back, and he doesn't tell another story. He describes the judgment in the future. And this is really profound and serious stuff in light of what he has just said. And so you read what he said in the end. You want to know about my coming? Let me tell you about my coming. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And they're like, oh yeah, that's what we want to hear about. And all the nations will be gathered before him And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right side, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right side, the good guys, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the disciples are hearing this and they're going, this is awesome. This is what we've been waiting for. We get put on the right side because we followed you. But Jesus, after dividing them, says, here's the deal. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Really? The righteous said, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or naked or or in prison or whatever? And we didn't do that. And the king will answer in verse 40 and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. But then he says, the king is going to look at the left-hand side, and when I look over there at the goats, there they are, the ones who didn't make the cut. Tom Brady, people like, no, just (laughs) goat. But he will also say to those on the left side, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Whoa, I was hungry, and you didn't give me any food. I was thirsty. You wouldn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger. 
and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. Then they'll say to him, come on, Lord. If we had ever seen you like that, we certainly would have done it. In verse 45, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is really kind of strange when we're going, okay, we understand, we need to be ready. We need to be good stewards of what God has given us. But in the end, when we face God, does it really come down to, let's talk about whether or not you cared about people who had needs? Now, right away here, um, I mean, this, there's an elephant in the room, of course. Like Jesus is saying this, and it'd be real easy to go, wait, so you get saved based on whether or not you take care of people who have needs, whether you really care about them. And there's something in us that pushes back on that, that rebels against that. And, and rightfully so. It's like, well, I understand that there's a judgment, but is the judgment... He, he doesn't say, you will stand before me and you need to be able to recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, make of honor. You need to tell when you walked the aisle, when you prayed the sinner's prayer. You need to tell what you believe on these doctrines. You need to show how much did you do for God and his church. You know, did you attend regularly? Did you watch online? Okay, but you, know, you better have a good reason. But isn't it weird that he goes... It's judgment day, and you guys are wondering when's the judgment coming? I'm going to bug you a little bit here and say, at the judgment, I'll only have to ask one question. Did you care about people who had needs? And that'll be all the information I need to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Now, this presents problems theologically. Um, and there are people who take this passage and go, well, it was a parable, um, parables are clearly parables. The first two parables were clearly parables. This is like that. This, I would defy anyone to explain to me how in the world this is a parable. This is Jesus describing what they were asking about, the final judgment, and when he returns. If this is a parable, then all of chapter 24 is a parable, and his promise of coming and judgment and everything else, that's all parabolic. There are some people who might believe that, but I look at it and go, it seems like Jesus is just talking to him about what's going to happen here. Now, I want to be really careful because the tendency is to look at this and do damage control for Jesus and go, well, you know, we hear what he's saying here, but, you know, we also consider Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so you have to take Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 along with Matthew 25. Problem is, Ephesians was written 38 or more years after this. So what did it mean when Jesus said it? Are you going to tell Jesus, well, you needed Paul to come along and give you more information. I just, I'm going to tell you, honestly, 
I don't completely understand everything that Jesus is saying in this message. It's one of the reasons why I like it. Because like I love things that make me go, huh, this is challenging. But I will not explain why Jesus didn't mean what he said. I would rather believe what he says and let the chips fall where they will rather than for me to explain him away and do damage control. Now, one of the problems when we look at this is, but wait a minute, there are people who take care of the poor. There are people who give food to homeless. There are people who would donate clothes so people could be clothed. There are people who seem to really care about people, but they don't know Jesus at all. So, I mean, like, and Chloe Kreekak's dog, Lois, is a dog that, that she goes to chalk and just all day long ministers to children who are suffering from, from horrible diseases. Certainly from this, Chloe's, Chloe's dog, Lois, is for sure going, you know, to heaven. Um, but, and actually, she actually has Lois put the little tithe envelope in her mouth and Lois goes and puts it in the offering. So I know she's good to go. But what about the Buddhist who is really kind and takes care of people? Well, and I don't want to dodge the question, but, you know, this is talking about people who profess faith in Jesus. Jesus was speaking to his followers here. He wasn't speaking to the masses. So let's just say, let's leave, put that aside for a moment because it's more disturbing the fact that he was saying this to people who believe that they follow him. And let's deal with that. Now, theologically, of course, we understand that you cannot be saved apart from Jesus. Jesus, you don't need Ephesians to know that. Jesus said it himself in John 14, that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So anyone who's saved is saved by believing in Jesus. Peter in Acts 4, talking to Annas, the high priest, said, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So that was written, that happened even before Matthew wrote this down. So we can certainly understand, okay, there's that. Um, but I also think that as we look at it, we can say, so... Everyone who gets saved gets saved because of Jesus. Now, is it possible for someone to be saved by Jesus even if they don't know much about Jesus, even if their theology isn't dialed in? For instance, if a little child dies, do you believe that child goes to heaven? If they do, it's because of Jesus. Somehow Jesus' blood paid for their sins that they inherited when they were born. The thief on the cross didn't know much about Jesus, but Jesus told him, you'll be with me in paradise. But let's put that aside, because the real question is, for the people who say, I believe in Jesus, this is disturbing, that it seems like people can believe in Jesus and want to be with him and want to go to heaven, and somehow, according to Jesus, they fall short. Now, earlier in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talked about people who preached in his name, did miracles in his name, cast out demons in his name, and he said, I never knew you. The bridegroom in this parable 
to the girls without their lamps taken care of. I never knew you, same phrase. So Jesus is saying, apparently here, I, I don't know how else to, to explain this passage, that he is saying not everybody who thinks they're going to heaven is going to heaven. And that should concern you. By the way, it, I mean, we do so much thanks to the Reformation and belief in eternal security and perseverance of the saints that Calvin taught and everything. We believe, oh, no, I'm, I know I'm saved. Too bad Paul didn't know that because Paul talked about the fact that every day I'm considering, wait, am I going to come short? Or am I going to receive everything that God has for me? So he had an insecurity that a lot of us have a great security. A lot of these people probably, no problem, man, I'm in. My theology is dialed in. But here, Jesus brings it back to his heart. It was clear if you read the Gospels, and we're just, we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've done the other Gospels fairly recently. The one thing you can't miss about Jesus is, boy, did he care about people who had needs. He didn't meet all of their needs. He didn't go into the food business for the poor. He didn't go into the clothing. He didn't even go into the healing business. But every once in a while, he would do something that reminded you he sees people in pain and he cares about them. He meets their greater needs, but he meets some of their intermediate needs too. And what Jesus seems to be clearly saying here is, if you don't share that heart for people who are needy, if you don't love people, see, the reason Jesus came is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he came and taught us what it is to care about others. And Jesus seems to be saying, the way to be ready for my return is to know that you have my heart, is to know that you care about others. Not perfectly, not that you can't be a jerk sometime, but in the end, it's like you actually are trying to do things to alleviate other people's pain in some way. And ultimately, going back to the stewardship, that means what I do today, God has given me a certain degree of understanding and information and talent and and experience and resources, time, energy, money, whatever. My job today is how can I invest what God has given me in a way that will actually reflect his heart and how can I in some way live my life so that I can look at it and go, I really do care about people who have needs, whatever those needs are. It's, it's not what saves you. You're not, in fact, in this, in this case, the people who are the sheep that go on the right, they're like, what? When did we do that? They weren't working for their salvation, but what they did showed where their heart was, showed the change that God had done in their heart. And that's something that if we... It has to make you nervous if most of what you're doing during a given day, which is, again, all we have is today, if most of what we do doesn't at all reflect the fact that we care about people, but we care about some other things more than we care about people.
people who have needs. So we live our lives in such a way that we say, how can I invest in the things that God cares about? Now, that looks different for different people because everyone has different talents, different gifts. Everyone has a different commission. We all have different experience and knowledge and abilities and, and personalities and capacities. We're all different. And so this isn't one size fits all. He isn't just saying, you know, take everything you have and give it away. That's, that's not what he's saying. He may say that to somebody who really has a problem with that, like the rich young ruler. But different people reflect his heart in different ways. That's why we're all different. Um, I read a story years ago. They studied these two guys. They both graduated from a Christian college at the same time. And each of them inherited several million dollars. And it was interesting because they went back and traced their lives and see what happened to them. And the one guy took his inheritance and he set up food banks everywhere and got clothing and gave it away to the poor. He was the ultimate charity guy. The other guy started a business. But after like seven years, the guy who did the food banks, he's out of food. Now he can't help anybody. Now he's actually living off other people. The guy that started the business, he had over 100 people who could house their families, feed their children, clothe their family, because he provided them with a job. It's never just as simple as it's either this or that. I mean, I, I was reading this week about um, Sam Walton, who founded Walmart. You can think what you will about Walmart, but he was a guy, a Christian guy, taught high school Sunday school in a little town in Arkansas, and he came up with the idea of starting a department store. And he actually kind of stole the idea from some other people. It wasn't original with him. But he started the store today, and he's in heaven now, but, but today Walmart is the number one employer in America. 2.2 million people have a job because of what Sam Walton started. Now, what are they doing without money? Housing and clothes and food and all those kinds of things. I look at it as like, wow, that's a guy who cared enough to do what he did to help provide for a lot of people. Now, maybe you can't start a business. Maybe what you can do is just go out and be nice to people or call people that you know are hurting or write them encouraging notes or, or just be an example to them. There's something that you can do, but your stewardship and mine is important in the context of this chapter. In what ways can I, my life, reflect those values that Jesus had caring for people? And it doesn't have to be in big, elaborate ways. You don't have to be Sam Walton. Now, to put it into perspective, by the way, Walmart, 2.2 million employees. Um, the number two employer is Yum Foods, which they own KFC, Jack in the Box, and Pizza Hut. And they only have like a little over 600,000 employees. So pretty impressive for Walmart. McDonald's is like five-something. So it's like so far ahead. So see, that's where vision comes in. That's where the person who got more talents 
has a greater responsibility to say, how can I use this to reflect his heart? But it also means every day I make decisions. What am I going to do today to have an impact? Sometimes, I know for me, it's hard to say no to people who are demanding my help. And, and I've found personally that there's nothing more exhausting than trying to help narcissists. Narcissists really only care. They may act like they care, but they really only care about themselves. And they'll never have enough. Nothing that you tell them will ever help. But what I find out is after I spend a bunch of time with a narcissist, I'm exhausted. And now I can't help anyone else. A part of stewardship is deciding I am going to do this rather than that. It's making those difficult choices to make the most of what you have. There are a lot of people in your life that are just a drain of time and energy. There are other things in your life that are like great opportunities. And you can be going through something, you know, I was thinking of a, a friend of mine just had a baby that's premature and she's in the neonatal thing. And I thought back to the demazes when they went through that. And I thought, wow, when you go through something like that, here's a chance for you to redeem everything that you've gone through because somebody can say, like Jeanette could, could, and Corey could go, we understand, and you can do this, and you can get through it. I mean, that's worth your life. If that's all you do in the end is that you encourage people in that kind of a situation. For us to do church, it's great, man. God uses our church to touch a lot of people's lives and to make a lot of difference. But, you know, it doesn't happen if somebody doesn't do the sound and the video and get it online. Because I hear from people every week whose lives are being changed, who many of them have told me that the reason they're alive is because of our broadcast. And I'm like... That's amazing, but we couldn't do what we do unless everybody was doing something. But that's what stewardship is, and I, and I think that's what Jesus is getting at here, but we can't miss it. Someday, we're going to be asked the question to show whether we're really his children or whether we're fakers. And the question is not a theological one. It's a behavioral one. What did you do to help people who were in need. It's that simple, according to Jesus. Now, if you want to wipe these chapters out of the Bible and jump right into whatever theology that you want to have, personally, if I'm hearing about what to expect in the end, I'd rather hear it from Jesus than anybody else. And this is what he lays out. So for each of us, we've been given a package of talents We've been given experience, gifts, resources, everything else. We're not perfect. We're always going to come short. But are we doing anything that in what we do, we see that we can make somebody who's in pain make their life a little better? That we can see somebody who's suffering? That we don't fix their problem, but we're at least there for them. They at least know that we care. We can slow down enough to make that difference, personally, I look at it and just go, if Jesus says that's what matters most, then I for sure want to have that down. I love theology. I enjoy that. I, I've studied it my entire life. But man, 
There were times like before I became a Christian, I knew theology. I could argue theology. I had it all down pat. But there was never a time during those years when I really cared about anybody else who was really hurting. I always thought they get what they deserve. It's different for all of us. I know a guy who, he, he watches our church every Sunday online. They live in another state, but he had told me, and he had been through a lot in his life and had a lot of baggage, but he told me, I don't know, I'm, you talk about loving people and I'm just kind of grumpy and I don't like being around people that much, but he goes, I really want to do that, so I'm going to send you some money every once in a while, put it in a separate account, whoever you want to help with it, just do it. I don't need to hear about it. That's his way of caring about others. We all better find a way because I promise you, when you face Jesus someday, and you will, and I don't know when it is, he's not going to ask you to explain your theology. You can't argue yourself into heaven. He's just going to go, so, did you care about what I care about? That's an uncomfortable question. And that's exactly why he asks it. Let's pray. Lord, this is, we understand that when we're looking at some of your last words that you spoke before you went to the cross, it's serious stuff. Your teaching here is what prepared the disciples to go out after you were in heaven to spread the gospel around the known world. And I'm sure they had your words echoing in their minds. They weren't thinking that someday you'll return and ask a few Bible questions. But they knew someday you will return and you're going to ask a heart question. How did you care about my people who were in need? Lord, help us to reflect on that, to be good stewards of everything that you've given us, to make the most of the opportunities that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.